And I'd like for you to turn to that third chapter of 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 5. What then is Apollos, and what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day, the day, will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned, burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man profanes, is the word, if any man profanes the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are, that is, you are the temple of God. Suppose you were commissioned by the Lord to give the cure, bring a cure for the carnality in Corinth. It was a terrible uh, situation in the church at Corinth. What would be your prescription and what would be the counsel that you would give as to how this church could get over its carnality? Well, that was what Paul was commissioned to do. He was commissioned to give some kind of solution to the carnality problem at Corinth. It's interesting that he didn't uh, give some doctrinal uh, advice because the problem wasn't theological or doctrinal. The problem was moral and ethical. And he didn't just pass it off with some of these cliches like you need to straighten up or just do it, that kind of stuff. He, he actually gave a solution to the problem of carnality in the church at Corinth. Now, a casual reading of this chapter, you know, you would not really know where he's going here. But, so it's important that you understand that verse 9 is a transitional sentence. And it begins with the word for because the Apostle Paul is referring back to what he has just said. And in the general context, he's been talking about these uh, categories of people in Corinth, three kinds of Christians, and then the lost person, spiritual man, babes in Christ, and the carnal Christians. 
But the immediate context is that he's dealing with those who are, could be described as being carnal Christians. Now we looked at that last week and said that a carnal Christian is a person who has the Spirit but, but doesn't live by the Spirit. And he's saved but he lives like he's lost. And so the Apostle Paul is speaking directly to them. And he says that, you know, Paulus is nothing and I'm nothing but servants through whom the Lord uh, wants to give leadership. And then he comes to this transitional sentence and he not only points back to what he has just said, but he points forward to what he's about to say. And these three phrases that are in verse 9 all begin with God. Now it's not that way in your translation because it's, uh, you know, it's kind of awkward to translate it like that. But it's literally, for God's fellow workers we are, God's field, God's building we are. And your Greek teacher would say that that means that God is in the emphatic position here. God is the one who gets the emphasis. And what he's trying to tell us is, is that, that we belong to God. And because he is in the emphatic position, he is saying that the believer is God's possession and God's property, lock, stock, and barrel. <coughs> so that when you confess your faith in Jesus Christ, or you walk down the aisle of a church, you're surrendering your life to God, lock, stock, and barrel. Now the problem with the church at Corinth was that somehow they lost sight of that. And, the, and carnality was the result of the fact that they had lost the vision of the fact that they belonged to God, lock, stock, and barrel. And any time you lose sight of that, then there is this... Uh, denigration of your commitment, there is this denigration of your relationship to God. So that the, the reverse side of that is that the solution to carnality is coming to grips with the fact that you belong to God, lock, stock, and barrel. Now he gives some steps that we have to, you know, back to the understanding of that. They're, and they move from the lesser to the greater. These steps that bring us back to the place where we recognize and experience the possession of God, where we recognize that we belong to Him. And there are three words, kind of you can use them kind of like pegs on which to hang the ideas of this sermon. Responsibility, reckoning, and reverence. So that he's saying, this is the way to get back to an understanding that you belong to God, which is the cure of carnality. That you have, first of all, a sense of responsibility to the building. Now stay with me just a moment. What God is about in redemption is the building up of a, of a place where He can shine in glory. He has always been about this from the beginning of time, raising up a people, raising up a building in which he himself can, get, can, can show forth his glory, kind of like a display case. Now, kind of like these Russell Stover candy places in the mall. You've seen them, haven't you? Man, I'm a sucker for Russell Stover candy. I mean, I have, I have ruined more diets on, on Russell. Have you ever noticed that these places are always at the, at the, at the intersections of the mall? They're right on the corner where all of the, of, the, of the places of the mall converge. And they always have these lights and these 
beautiful windows. And inside these windows, this, these display cases, are these luscious chocolates just lying there. And as you pass by, you know, we, we have a little uh, joke that we do in our, in our house. If they're on our left, we always walk by and say, eyes right, you know, keep... But there's just... They're over there in these display cases and they're saying, come and get me, big boy. You know, and, and I can't resist those Russell Stover candies. Now, in a much more spiritual way than that, what God is about is, to, is that He's raising up a people in whom He can shine in all His glory. And what Paul wants us to see is, is that you and I have a responsibility to take this foundation, and the foundation, you know what that is, it's Jesus Christ. He said, I've laid the foundation so that it begins with our relationship to Him, and on our relationship to Him, we're responsible to build this superstructure in which God can shine in glory. And beautiful is the illustration of the material that goes into that superstructure. He said there, there's gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. And he's contrasting those materials. And this is what he's saying. He's saying this. He's saying that if you build a, su a superstructure on the foundation of your relationship to Jesus Christ, and it is such a superstructure that he can shine in glory, it'll have to be built out of gold, silver, and precious stones. In other words, it will cost you something to do that. It's expensive. There's no such thing as cheap grace. No more of this, what's the minimum cost? What's the least I can do to get by as a Christian? No more of this, does tithing come before or after taxes? None of this stuff like, is there some minimum requirement? None of that. What he's saying is this, is that if you build a life in which God can shine in His glory, it'll be expensive, it'll be costly. Halford Luckett in one of his books tells about being in Madison, Wisconsin one Saturday afternoon. He picked up the newspaper and he turned to the section that was advertising the church services for Sunday. And he said he saw this half-page ad of, this, of the Madison Heights Methodist Church. Couldn't be Baptist. Madison, Madison Heights Methodist Church. And he said it, they, these people were practicing a fire drill and had a picture of it. Everybody was having a fire drill. You remember when we used to, in grade school, you know, they'd have a fire drill and everybody'd line up and leave the building. We had to practice in case there was a fire. And had this, this little caption underneath the picture. Now watch this. It said, the members, the, the, the worshipers at Madison Heights Methodist Church are practicing a fire drill. These measures and others are used to guarantee the safety of the people who worship at Madison Heights Methodist Church. And Halford Luckett stuck his tongue way back in his cheek and said, that's the problem with the church. We're more interested in safety than we are adventure. Now when Jesus called men, he called them to follow him, not in spite of the cross, but because of it, and said this in essence, if you're going to live a life or build a life, in which I can shine in glory, you need to know right up front that it's no cheap safety measure. And he gave two parabolic illustrations, they're twin illustrations, to nail down the point. One was about a farmer who was out working one day in the field. Now he didn't own the field, he just worked in it. And you can just kind of see him following along after a primitive 
plow that was pulled by a couple of oxen. And he's just burning up in the noon sun, hoping this thing would hurry up and get over He could quit, so he could quit. Night would come. And all of a sudden, that plow hits something in the ground, and, he, and it unearths a, 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 a jar, a, a, a vessel. And he looks around to see if anybody's watching, and he opens the vessel up, and inside is a precious treasure buried there sometime way in the past and he looks to see if anybody's watching and he quickly covers it up with dirt and he he ties up the oxen and he goes and he sells everything he has he's not required by law to, to tell the farmer what he's found because he'd been buried there probably by, by an ancient Amorite and when he sells everything he has he comes back and he buys the land forget the field he has the treasure now, it's not common for us to unearth treasures in the backyard or in the fields, but back then it was often, it was common because they didn't have banks and because Palestine was a land bridge between Egypt and the world empires, these guys would come through there pillaging the farms and the houses and they'd bury their treasures out in the fields and in the yard and they often found those. And when he found that treasure, he sold everything for it. The second illustration he told right after that was about a man, a merchant, seeking goodly pearls. Now, he wasn't a collector of pearls. He'd buy them in one place and sell them in another with a little, for a little profit. And you can just see him going into the tent of this, sla this uh, pearl trader, this precious jewel trader. And in this tent, he, he, he looks at the display, and all of a sudden, he sees it. It's the most precious pearl he's ever seen. Just the right size, just the right texture. And all of a sudden, he's like a He's like a poker player in a high-stakes game. His palms are sweaty. He doesn't want to give away the fact that he knows that's a priceless pearl. He doesn't even look at the merchant. After a while, their eyes locked together. And he asks, how much for this pearl? And the man names a price, and he said, well, just a minute. Uh, give me some time. I'll have to... I'll have to think about it. Give me a little time. And he leaves the tent and he comes, he goes and sells everything he has. And he comes back and he buys that pearl of greatest price. Sells everything for it. Now Jesus says this. He says, in order for you to build a life that in which I can shine in glory, it means that you're going to have to give up everything. Now what does he mean by everything? Does he mean that we have to liquidate all of our possessions and become paupers? No, everything that will forbid the rule of God in your life. That's what I'm talking about. Relationships and habits and attitudes and businesses. Everything that will prevent the rule of God. And he's saying this, that if you're going to build upon this foundation, it's going to be costly. But you have a responsibility to do that. And when you understand that responsibility, that is the first step to the cure of carnality. Secondly, when you come to understand that there is a day of reckoning. Now this is what Paul is talking about here. He says that there's coming the day when this work of ours will be tested, tried, judged. Now he's not talking about you know, whether or not we're going to go to heaven, that's already been settled when you profess your faith in Jesus Christ. But your work will be judged. And there is a bema before which everyone will stand and have his work judged. And there is a bema, what, listen to me, there is a bema, 
a judgment seat before which every person will stand and God will judge his life and what he did with it. And it's interesting that the, t- the tone of this, the, 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 the phrasing of this is that every single person individually will be singled out for judgment. Now it won't be the, that there'll be a, the First Baptist Church will be standing there corporately and we'll all be judged together. You know, sometimes you can kind of get lost in the church and you can kind of take, you know, a free ride on the work of others so that when somebody says, well, that First Baptist Church is doing great things, are you a member? You bet, I'm, yeah. And you can take credit for that. But when we stand, listen to me, when we stand before God, every individual's life and works will be judged separately. Now that must be a traumatic, that's, that's going to be a traumatic experience. Here's an old boy that comes on Sunday and he kind of hides behind the column, you know, back in the back. You've seen those big long auditoriums and big columns and he gets kind of behind there so the preacher can't see him. And the preacher kind of walks over here and he kind of moves over here. And he, he just kind of stays behind the column and he just kind of gets lost in the crowd. Oh, listen, when that day comes, every man's work is tried, tested, judged. And the word he uses is this. He said, every man's work becomes evident. I love that way he describes it. Because what we do is not always evident. It can be veiled and and, and it it can be camouflaged. But let me, let, but I, 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 I really want you to get what he's talking about and listen to me. On that day, it's going to be every man's work exposed, made evident for what it is in character. Now, if you have a King James Bible, the real Bible, it says, it will be tested as to what sort it is. It's not, what he's saying is that that man's work will be tested as to its character and quality. Not the size. Because we can do a lot of things in the energy of the flesh and for the wrong reason and the wrong motive, as Vance Havner calls them, these haystack monuments to our egos. But when God judges us at the Bema, We're going to be judged on the basis of the quality of that work. And you remember what what David did? He he wanted to build that temple. And God said, no, I'm not going to let you do that because you're not not called as a construction engineer. You're a a warrior, a fighter, but your son will build the temple. And when the temple was built... God said to David, I knew it was in your heart, and so I'll reward you the same as if you did it. Now, I suppose that God is the only master I know who pays the same amount for the intention as he does for the action. That's what sin is. And so Jesus said, you've heard it said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say if you have the intent to commit adultery, it's the same as the act. You've heard it said of old, thou shalt not kill. I say to you, if you intended to kill, it's the same as the act. 
so that He rewards on the basis, not just, He rewards as much for the intention as He does the action. And so God looks in our heart and He sees the why of what we do. And He rewards us on the basis of the motivation behind it. And He says that some of the things that you and I do are going to go up in smoke like wood, hay, and straw. It doesn't mean that you'll lose your salvation. It means that your salvation will be reduced to a minimum. As Vance Havner said, saved but singed. Now let me tell you something. If I really believe, folks, that one of these days, maybe tomorrow, maybe this afternoon, maybe next week, maybe 50 years from now, I'm going to stand before God and everything I've done in life will be put to the bema, to the test, to the judgment. It's going to make a lot of difference in whether I live a carnal life or not. Reckoning. Responsibility. Reverence. Now I'd like for you just to get real quiet and listen. Kids and adults to this last thought. I believe it's the most serious part of this text. He says in verse 16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now the dwelling place of God is very precious to Him and you are that dwelling place. For God does not dwell in houses made with hands. And if they tore down that mosque that's on the holy mount that now the Arabs control in ancient Jerusalem, if they tore down that mosque and built a temple there, he would not dwell in it. Because God does not dwell in houses made with hands. He dwells in the human heart of the believer. So that this body of yours is the dwelling temple of the of Almighty God. Now there are two Hebrew words for temple. One of them refers to the whole temple court, temple area, the courtyard and everything, the court of the Gentiles. In the court of the Gentiles, any old dog can run around in there. And when Jesus cleansed the temple, the word that is used there is the word for the whole st structure, the whole thing. The courtyard, the Gentile court, and everything. But this word that Paul uses, watch this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is a different word. And it refers to the holy of holies, the holiest place. Now the holiest place, the holy of holies, is the place where God symbolically dwelled. And there was a veil that hung there that separated it from the rest of the temple. Now who could go inside the holiest place? Only the high priest, only once a year. And he had to be of the tribe of Levi. He had to be a Levite. And he had to be of the lineage of Aaron. So that it was a very exclusive group that could ever go inside that holy place. Because where God dwelled to the Jew was so sacred and so holy that they backed away from it. 
And all of their conduct and all of their thought was altered by the reality that this is a place where God dwelled. And so when the Jew, Jewish high priest, put on his robe to go inside the holiest place, you could hear little bells ring because they tied little bells on the hem of his robe. What, what was that for? Well, so they could hear him moving around on the inside. They just knew that if a man went inside where God was, that he would probably die there. And as long as they could hear these bells ringing, they knew that he was still alive. And so here they stood on the outside of the holiest place, and they listened as this man moved around in the place where God was. And it was an awesome thing to them. You need to remember that the name Yahweh to, to the Hebrew was so sacred they wouldn't even pronounce it. And if he was writing the name and a Jew and a king spoke, they wouldn't respond. If he was writing the name and his pen ran out of ink, he'd just write it with a dry pen. It was so sacred and so holy that all of their life was altered by it. Now, if the holiest place is that awesome and that sacred. You know what he's saying? That's where God dwells. That's how you should look at this body. At the turn of this century, a Jewish, a German theologian by the name of Ludwig Otto decided he would do a little survey as to what people how people behaved of all nations, how they behaved when they sensed they were in the presence of holiness, of something holy. We'd, we'd say spooky, you know what I'm saying? You, you with me now? This is yes. This, this is, something awesome. And he took this survey and he came up with two observations about how people behave in the presence of something holy. Number one, was that they couldn't explain what they felt. It was beyond explanation. It, was, it transcended communication. They couldn't explain what they experienced. Second, he said that there was something that he called the mysterium tremendum. Now, that means the mysterium tremendum is this feeling that you get when all of a sudden you are in the presence of something holy. Like we say our skin crawls. You, you know what I'm saying? We, we say our hair kind of curls up on the back of our neck. Our blood runs cold. The mysterium tremendum. I was in the presence of the holy. I was in the presence of an unseen presence and my hair stood on end. My flesh crawled. The mysterium now, the sad part about this illustration is that, I, as, as Jerry is saying a while ago with me, we were talking, is that none of my staff knows anything about what I'm talking about. When I, when I talk about those old radio shows, that tells how old I am. Those old radio, y'all remember, some of you guys, some of you ladies can remember those old radio shows before television? Lone Ranger, you know? My, my favorite was Bobby Benson and the B-Bar-B. Man, what a show. 
<laughs> my father used to listen to a, he used to listen to a, every, every night at about seven o'clock, he'd listen to a show called Luigi. Some of you can, how about Our Gal Sunday? Does that ring a bell? Those old radio shows? And then about eight o'clock at night, everybody got ready for they have this squeaking door, you know, creaking door. And you, you could hear scratching, and, and there'd be some chains clinking. And, and then there'd be this real deep, haunting voice say, Welcome to the inner sanctum. Y'all remember that show? The inner sanctum. I mean, we get up on the edge of the seats, you know. My dad, boy, I mean, get quietly in the inner sanctum. And, and, and there was, you know what the inner sanctum, you know what that word, those words mean? It just means within the holy. Within the holy. To come within the holy is to get quiet, take off your shoes. It's to sense something happening that you cannot even explain. You're... you're your skin crawls and your hair stands on end. Your blood runs cold. This is the holy place. Now, if somebody came in this building last night, vandals, and they come in, came into this auditorium and they wrote graffiti on the wall, obscene words on the walls, and they scattered paint up and down the aisles of this place, and they wrote ugly words on this pulpit, and you came in here this morning, what would be your reaction? You'd say, don't anybody respect God anymore? Is there nobody who has any sense of, is there nothing sacred? Now, if those vandals had gone into the Apco station down the street and had done that, you'd have probably reacted a little different. You'd have probably said, well, who, I wonder who those mean kids are. I bet I know. Some of you teachers, let me give you a list. Okay, I know. You, you'd, you'd react like it would it, cause you. But what if it had happened, what if it had happened in, in this place, which we call, quote, the house of God? This is a sacred place. We call it. This is the inner sanctum. This is where God dwells. No, it isn't. This is where God dwells. Now, if this is the inner sanctum of God, this is the holy of God, then who can desecrate it and who can profane it and live? And God is saying to the church at Corinth, you take this body which is my dwelling place and you join it to a prostitute. You take this body which is my dwelling place and you desecrate it with the habits of the world and I'll kill you. Now that would wake me up. <laughs> that, would, that would change the way I lived. That's the way it is. If it isn't, let's close this up and forget about it. The cure for carnality is this. That you understand that when Jesus Christ was given to you, that's the foundation on which you have a responsibility to build a superstructure in which He can get glory and it'll cost you. No cheap grace. 
second step is that you understand that one of these days you're going to stand before God. He's going to go right down your list as to what you've done with that life. But the apex of that warning is you are the temple of God and He considers that place very holy. What's the cure? What's the answer? Well, the answer is that I must give Him exclusive rights to my body. Exclusive rights to my body. Listen to this and I'm through. If anything or any other, if you claim rights to your life, you're on your way, if not already there, to the kind of carnality that God will destroy. You better give Him exclusive rights to your life again. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit will have the freedom to do what He wants to do in our life today, collectively and individually. For I pray in Jesus' name for His sake. Now look here. There are three invitations. One invitation is for you to come today, first time, to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. If you're willing to step out of where you are and tell Jesus, I want you to come and live in my life, and I take the hands off, and I surrender my life to you. He'll come into your life and transform you from within. It's called a new birth. There may be some of you who needs to come, who need to come this morning, as in the early service to say, I want to be a part of this fellowship. But there may be some of you today who are in the category of the carnal Christian. What you need to do is to give Him exclusive right to your life, your body, your life again. Whatever you want to call that, you need to do that today. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.